Hi, this is David Warner. You're listening to ABC Grandstand at Stumps. Thank you, David. It's nice to hear your voice again, and we're back with a special World Cup edition of Grandstand at Stumps. Ed Cowan, Jim Maxwell, and myself, Corbin Middlemass, accompanying you throughout World Cricket's showpiece 50-over tournament now in its 12th edition, the Cricket World Cup. Ten teams this time around staged in England and Wales for the first time in 20 years, and the Australian cricket team are the defending champions. Ed Cowan, welcome along. Corbin, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm excited about this little project. I'm excited about the World Cup. There are a few late nights ahead of us, I think, as we Mm. look to unravel the issues that are hopefully going to present themselves but uh, as I said the World Cup it holds a special place I think in in most cricket lovers hearts and uh, I I have a sneaking suspicion this World Cup's going to be no different. But you would have seen already on social media and other news organisations there's this blog running up and about and you can follow along that way or you can get behind some paywall and follow some YouTuber throughout the World Cup and I know what most of you are thinking out there that you just want a nice clean clean breakdown of what's happening at the World Cup. Just get all your analysis in about 30 minutes and that's exactly what we're going to give you as the tournament plays on. So we'll be here, as Ed said, a couple of late nights and early mornings uh, to talk you through what's front of mind in Australian cricket after the Aussies' third, sixth and ninth pool game. So given the fact we play every other nation in the tournament once following the 1992 model and we'll be back for the semi-final stage and the final stage as well to discuss uh, how the tournament's going Uh, and probably answer all those questions that uh, you have leading into the tournament as well. One of them, Ed, is the Australian cricket team. How do you think they'll fare? Well, if you'd asked me this question six months ago, and I think during the the summer broadcast that we had on Grandstand, it it did pop up. I I was pretty uh, bearish on on Australia's hopes. I think they'd lost five of the last sort of 21 days. They had no confidence whatsoever. They didn't really have a style of play. They didn't have a settled lineup. The big name players were missing in Smith and Warner. You know, it just looked as though it was going to be a bit of a disastrous campaign. But fast forward five months uh, after a series win in India, a great series win in Pakistan. You know, the captain finding some form, all the little pieces of the puzzle that were, were missing a style of play and a confidence that, you know, you've come to expect from Australian cricket, all of a sudden they're back in as an ingredient for success. And I guess I think would would be proud of anything from, uh, from semi-final sort of stages at this point. I think they can win the tournament. I'd, I wouldn't have said that six months ago, that's for sure. And I think their success really depends on their big-name players. Uh, it depends on a Mitch Stark taking wickets up front. It depends on Pat Cummins with the ball. You know, there's an expectation on Smith and Warner. I think there's an interesting storyline that will play out around the spin bowlers uh, we saw in the Champions Trophy uh, two years ago in England. At the back of the tournament, at really turning. And so, is Adam Zampa the best option? He has been for a little bit now, but Nathan Lyons in the squad and a great inclusion. So there are these sort of subplots now that, that will play out. Um, and and then it comes down to if you can make the semifinals, any team on their day can win how they deal with pressure. And I think Australia of all the teams are probably best placed to perform come semifinal time, but they're going to have to get there. 
Their World Cup aura, the fact that I think they've lost something like three or four of their past 43 uh, ODIs that they've played in, in in World Cup cricket, do you think that um, that will help or, or hinder the Australians having that history behind them when, when this group comes together? Yes. There's been a little bit of talk, hasn't there, around World Cup experience. Obviously, there are some World Cup winners from 2015 in Australia, but I don't think it's going to play out uh, as a narrative. I think, you know, the the World Cup's gone by. There's such a, a time period between them. The experience doesn't count for much unless you're living in an area where, where you play sort of three or four and you're Glenn McGrath or Shane Warne, these huge uh, players, Ricky Ponting, that, you know, basically won two World Cups off off his own bat. So, yeah, we will be looking to Mitch Stark, who destroyed so many uh, batsmen's fairy tales at the last World Cup, as well as Steve Smith, who, you know, one of my great World Cup memories is is his master 400 in the in the semi-final SCG in the last World Cup. So they they are big players. But regardless of whether it's a World Cup, Australia will look to them to win games of cricket year in year out, and it's up to them to now step up again on the biggest stage. You mentioned the recent form reversal and the 50-over version of the games. So they won eight in a row now. Uh, the Australians in uh, in official ODIs, and previous to that, they'd lost. 22 of a possible 26 games. Is it just a matter of um, flipping a switch for the Australians? Is that what's been the the form reversal? Or, or what do you put it down to as to why all of a sudden they're a contender? I think the change of coaches has certainly helped. I think he's brought in a different style. I think uh, the, the former regime uh, under Darren Lehman was an attack-at-all-costs mentality. And, and I, I'm not quite sure we had the the cattle to pull that off. Um, you know, we've seen England play with great success and it almost felt like we were trying to emulate how England were playing rather than what was the best strategy with this current group of Australian cricketers to win each and every game of cricket. Uh, and, and I feel as though that style has come in. It's been maybe pared back a little bit in terms of the all-out attack. They're still a very positive cricket team, but you know, just the inclusion of the best batting talent. You know, Usman Khawaja is a proven international cricketer, so he's playing at the top of the order, or, you know, hopefully at one or two or three in the order. Sean Marsh is in around the team. Guys that know how to score runs in one-day cricket. It felt like we were mixing and matching and we were testing out Darcy Short off the back of a couple of half-decent Big Bash games at at one stage, and then when he was in the team, he got dropped, uh, you know, after two bad games. So the the constant chopping and changing, all of a sudden they've settled on a few players, but the players they've settled on are people that know how to perform in international cricket. There's, There's no doubt about that, and I think that's just given them a little bit of confidence, and that confidence has translated back into performance. So every Australian cricket fan is doing the same thing where they're, they're looking at the team at the moment and particularly in the squad of 15 and saying, how how do they come together? What does the our best 11 actually look like? Yeah, well, I, I, it it feels as though Finch, Kawaja will open. I think Warner will bat at three, Smith at four. Uh, five, you can either play another batsman in, in Sean Marsh or you play a, a Glenn Maxwell and, a, a, and then a Stoinis um, or you play... You know, Marsh, Stoinis, and Maxwell in that role coming in at seven and finishing as he as he did in that Indian series, and that might leave you a little bit short uh, on the other side. But you've got uh, 
you know, Carey, who's keeping well and you know as the as the sole keeper, he's he's obviously one of the few lock-ins. Uh, Stark, Cummins, Zampa will start, but I see a, a role that Lyon will play, and then there's the, the sort of last bowling position that will create some interest, I think. And and just looking at the warm-up games, it might be. Kane Richardson, I feel as though Berendorf is a bit more of a like-for-like like, uh, with Mitchell Stark. I can't see them playing two mm. left-armers at this point in time. Uh, and so when you look at that team, you think that team could win a World Cup. Um, you know, experience, skill, and particularly that top order. If, if, if they can provide the bulk of the runs, Maxwell Stoinis can put the icing on the cake, so to speak. Uh, while we look at the runs, having said that, I think the bowlers will win the World Cup if Australia are out to win. It feels like just even on that list where you look at guys like Sean Marsh, Kawaja, Stoinis, um, and even if you throw Maxwell into that category, that it, it'll probably come down to you can have two of those four as to the guys that you go with to be able to balance I it all up. I think, yeah, I think they'll probably try and squeeze three in in the first instance. And I think Sean Marsh will probably be the one who misses out. Um, Ooh. It's been a as I said best ODI batsman well, in the last eighteen months. Uh, yeah, not in the last six though. I think that's probably more important. That you know, Kawaja has to be there. I think he's the leading run scorer, maybe across international cricket, any team in the last twelve months. Uh, so this is this is good signs. The players who are performing are missing out. Obviously, Finch has been the one under pressure. And three months ago, you would have said. Maybe mm. Sean Marsh at the top and Finch misses out, but after that record-breaking series in Pakistan, you can't leave him out. You know, having said that, well, not having said that, he's not going to be left out. Yeah. He's the captain, but his form has dipped again in the last three practice games and a few before that. He, he hasn't really shown much, so it's going to be up to him to lead from the front. But uh, the point I was trying to make before is the the batsman will. Uh, it feels as though. They're there or thereabouts. But as we have seen in previous World Cups, when it was Nathan Bracken and Sean Tate in the West Indies, when it was Mitchell Stark in Australia in 2015, while in one-day cricket we always look to how many runs and how quickly you can get them, it's actually the bowlers that can really win you these tournaments. And how uh, Stark and Cummins and the rest of the bowling group perform, I think, is is going to be one of the key differentiators on, on flat wickets. So Warner, you had him at three behind Kawaja. You think he'll bat at first drop? Yeah, I think he, I think he will to start with. Uh, that's the feeling I get. Um, I'm not a hundred percent certain, but if if I was uh, yeah. if I if I was to be a betting man, which I'm not, I think that's probably the way I'd, I'd lean in the in the first game. Yep. Would you? So that's how you think they'll go. Is that how you would go? Given he's played what I think he's had 105 ODI innings and. Only once he hasn't opened the batting in, in that time and it was a game against Scotland. Yeah, I think his game has evolved as well. You look at his role in the IPL over the last few years, it's been anywhere from you know one right down through to four. And in fact, I think the most uh, prodigious year he had in the IPL, he, he was batting at four. So I think what it does is it provides some flexibility. Uh, I think they they like... Kawaja in the top three at the moment, and whether he drops down to three and Warner opens, you know, it's 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 much of a muchness, and it, and it will depend, I think, a little bit on how Aaron Finch is going. If Finch is struggling, we might see Warner go back to the top, 
and and Kawaja creates some stability. So yeah, the, that sort of flexibility is now inherent in in that top six. One thing Justin Langer loves too is a uh, is a moving order. We saw that in his days with the Perth Scorchers, particularly in T Twenty cricket. Loves a left hand right hand combination at at most opportunities, and he's he's not afraid to move the order on the run. Yeah, I think that's the nature of of modern day white ball cricket. Uh, you see it a lot in T Twenty and and fifty over cricket. The style of of 50-over batting has certainly gravitated towards T20 batting rather than test batting. In the last four years, we've seen strike rates go through the roof. So every player knows how adaptable he has to be, whether you know to, to be batting in power plays uh, or to come in later in the order and, and to walk out and try and hit the first ball for six. And, and the modern-day player is, is more accustomed to that. And I think particularly in England where... You get some odd shaped grounds. We're so used to seeing these beautiful, um, you know, the Australian fan, these large AFL grounds that have drop-in cricket wickets now and the perfect oval. In the UK, you can have grounds that are square, basically, and short boundaries. And, you know, one boundary is 15 metres shorter than the other on one side. Yeah. So you can end up with some really strange dimensions and the, the left-hand, right-hand dynamic can be really important. So Steve Smith and David Warner, you spoke about all the subplots off the top and, and clearly they're, they're going to be one uh, as we go. Steve Smith's already got 100 in one of the practice games against England. He was roundly jeered uh, both when he walked out to bat and after he scored his century. Uh, he had this to say to the press in the aftermath when quizzed about it. Yeah, I heard a few things as I, as I went out to bat, but um, you know, it didn't really sort of get to me. It was... I'm kind of just trying to keep my head down and, and move straight ahead and um, just do my job. How do you think they'll be received, uh, Smith and Warner? Sounds like he's been getting some media training, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> that could not have been <laughs> more cliched response uh, from from Steve Smith. But uh, I, I think, like all sportsmen, people forget when you're performing and you you know there's there's some artistry in in the way. Steve Smith bats particularly that if he's scoring runs it's hard not to appreciate him as purely as a as a player and I think the the joys of World Cups are that you do get a lot of international spectators so it's not that huge uh, English barmy army influence obviously we have to play England but at the other games you, you don't feel as though it's going to have that same atmosphere um, I think they both look in good touch um, I'm expecting both to to be, you know, heavy run scorers, and and I think Steve Smith's appetite for runs is at its absolute uh, sort of zenith at the moment, and and the fact that he doesn't have to captain will really uh, make sure that he's focused on 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 those runs scoring. Will it uh, affect sort of? You know, the the two guys as people. Do you think it will affect them? Um, I guess even even mentally to be able to sort of uh, know that that reaction's out there. Or, all I can think of, I'm trying to put myself in their shoes. You'd, surely they're thinking at one point, can I ever outrun this? Is this just going to be a footnote on my cricketing career forever? Um, if those thoughts go through the, through their heads from the, uh, I guess, the, the personalities that you know. Yeah, well, starting with Dave Warner, I think he's a he's a street fighter from way back, as yeah. we know. And I, this School isn't hard the first uh, <laughs> the first time attention's been drawn to to this kind of uh, issue. Uh, in terms of him being the focal point of of uh, of crowds and, and attention, so the, uh, you know my, my 
gut feel with him is that that's going to be water off a duck's back, um, or at least publicly. And and Steve Smith is is probably slightly more sensitive, um, but I think he's a man who feels as though he's done his penance and and to give back to the game is to to be scoring runs and, and looking forward. He's not a complicated character, and and I, I feel as though he he will be desperate to to make amends with the bat and he's the kind of player that can. Warner in recent times, I mean he got the vice captaincy and he's he's played in relatively inexperienced teams. Obviously Smith is formally the captain in his own right across all versions of the game. Then you have uh, Justin Langer as a very hands-on coach. Ricky Ponting's alongside him. The the leadership dynamics with obviously Finch as the captain going to the tournament. How do you think all that will will play out with a, a number of big personalities and and guys that have captained their teams previously on a on a high state on a high level? Yeah, and you can throw Brad Haddon into that mix. Uh, I think it, from a coaching structure point of view, Australian coaching, you know, the, the team that Justin Langer has assembled for this World Cup it probably has never looked stronger. You know, Ricky Ponting, Justin Langer, Adam Griffith there, um, high-quality bowling coach. So uh, it can only it can only be a good thing. And both Langer and Ponting are sort of these spiritual leaders of, of Australian cricket. They were when they played, and I think they still are. And they're, they're revered by the players, and I think there's some fear around that from the players in a, in a good way that you, you don't want to upset those two because you know their, their disappointment is almost like that fatherly disappointment to to let those two down uh, is something that you, you don't want to have to bear and uh, and then you can just let Aaron Finch do his his on field stuff he can he can lean on on Smith and Warner as required but he, he's put his own stamp on this team I think um, probably culturally more than anything. Uh, you know, the, they seem that they've come together in the last 12 months, they've, they've copped a few hidings, the, they've been down the dumps, and often uh, that adversity can, can create a bond, and, and hopefully that bond can, can play out with, with with a successful World Cup campaign. It must be a weird dynamic to think that you're missing for a very obvious reason. It's spoken about so frequently in the press, and then to walk back into that locker room in a team that was previously yours... Since then, the coach has changed. As you said, the, uh, there's been a new culture set um, under Aaron Finch and, and with the one-day team and obviously clearly Tim Payne with the, with the test side. Um, yeah, I imagine the dynamics would be a little odd and yet they've had warm-up games and everything. By the time they get to their, their first hit out against Afghanistan, they would have been together for, for a couple of weeks. Oh, make, make no mistake, I think it is a very different setup than than the one they left. And, you know, when, when they did come back into the squad, you know, Cricket Australia were very firm in putting out these videos, uh, nothing's changed, and the, the public line was very clear from everyone involved. Um, I think there will be some tension behind the scenes, but all good teams have tension behind the t- behind the scenes, so I don't think that's unique, um, and, and I think it will take some time for them to to really function as, as a cog in the wheel, but you know, I've got full faith that you know, the leadership now is strong with Langer and Ponting and, and they're not going to stand for anything that they don't deeply believe in and, and anyone that steps outside those sort of parameters are, is going to be dealt with. So um, I think I think it's a nice sort of uh, 
structure for those two to, to come back in. We'll hear from Jim Maxwell in just a moment as well, the uh, the voice of Australian cricket. I, I had the chance to catch up with Jim earlier, Ed, and I, I asked him about what he was anticipating in the tournament. And the first thing that he said was a lot of runs. Uh, given the English conditions, what is what do you think a par score is going to be? Is this going to break all sorts of records in, in terms of World Cups and, uh, and runs? It's an interesting question. I, I think the generalist answer is yes. You know, and there are some certain ingredients in, into that answer. One is England one-day pitches are the best to bat on in the world. They've got a nice even pace to them, uh, a nice even bounce. They don't bounce too much. You never really fear uh, fear being bounced out around your nose. You can power through the line, back of a length. You can hit over the top from back of the length, you know, with some comfort, confidence. The ball doesn't really seem, uh, with the white kookaburra on dry wickets, the score the squares go across the whole field so you can only you know you can just lean on balls and they can beat fielders and and not only beat the infield to get to the outfield but the outfielders don't have much hope in stopping the ball because uh, the square goes across the ground and then you have very small grounds and as I said before grounds with very odd dimensions and, and some short boundaries so all those ingredients go in the pot and you kind of you feel like you can sniff out a regular 350 score but I think each ground has its very unique characteristics around you know a lot of those ingredients so it might be 350 at Lords but we know at Trent Bridge that 400 is is sometimes not enough we saw England get 480 last year there so you know I think the the par score thematic is is kind of out in one day cricket and it, it's so so much detail goes into knowing what the par score is at each individual ground or against an individual team uh, that that it is very uh, it's unique to each game but one thing for sure is we will see some high scores I think spin's going to play a big part at the back end of the tournament maybe to bring those scores down and as, a, as I've sort of said a couple of times I really do think it's the team that bowls the best that is going to win the World Cup. Uh, you, you need some attacking options with the new ball. You need to be able to defend. And, and one little thing that does concern me about the Aussies is their lack of really high-quality death bowling, apart from mm. if Mitch Stark's at his best. Uh, high-quality death bowling, doesn't matter on what size ground you're playing on, is effective. And I, I do feel as though those last 10 overs, Australia are, are lacking a little bit. Um but having said that, the you know the favourites, England, I think their death bowling has been really poor of late, and they've relied on these huge totals. So there are so many little storylines that are going to play out that I can't wait to unravel. So take us through the the other teams outside of Australia. Who are the the genuine title contenders? Yeah, well, obviously England, uh, having. I think won 16 one-day series on the on the trot. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's 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 a high number, um, somewhere around that. Um, they at home are certainly the favourites. There's no doubt about that. There is a glimmer though, and uh, and that is that at World Cups traditionally they've been poor. They haven't dealt with pressure of World Cups very well at all. In the last six, they haven't made the semi-finals. Make no mistake, they are the best team in the world at the moment. But will that pressure get to them? The style of play that they have um, fostered under Owen Morgan 
and, and Trevor Bayliss's coaches all out attack. And under pressure comes semi-final time. It takes a lot of courage to try and execute that in a World Cup semi-final, to, to play with no fear when you know that one mistake and it might might come all crashing down on top of you. So I think teams will play on that. They'll play to their you know, innate sense and, and wanting to attack because under pressure that's very hard to do. And I, th- I think their bowling could be exposed uh, and, and they're going to rely on, on big totals. Um, they've obviously got a big in with Joffre Archer, um, who's, who's a fine player. They're going to be hard to beat and they are favourites. I think next in line come uh, probably India, uh, who, you know, so much white ball talent. Um, have some great death options. People like Jasper Boomer, who who we've seen so much in Australia over the last uh, six to eight months. You know, Coley, Rohit Sharma, you know, um, just so much batting depth. But then on the flip side, traditionally they haven't played great one-day cricket in England. Uh, and one-day uh, conditions over there now should actually suit them, but mentally they haven't been a- able to overcome that. So... They are a huge chance of winning. I think there's a little bit of a gap there after that. I think Australia can win, but they'll they'll need to play their absolute best cricket and, and things will have to go their way. Um, I, I can't see anyone of outside those three teams Ooh. winning it. Um, but, you know, there are... <laughs> New so Zealand what, yeah. could compete in and around the fringe. I mean, you can kind of rule them out off the top Sri Lanka and no chance. Yeah. They'll finish last uh, by a country mile. South Africa are missing some key players in and around, you know, the last few years like AB de Villiers. They don't, I don't feel like they've got the X factor, but, you know, that solid grinding cricket that they've been playing, I, I just don't think will will cut it. Um, Pakistan are in a rut. The West Indies are probably the smoky um, you know, of all the ten teams that could win it from nowhere, um, if their batsmen get going, you know, a, a, any scores possible, and and they do have some some bowlers that, particularly in white ball cricket, have some tricks. Probably missing a high quality spinner, but again, you know, that's smoky status. I, I think. Um, what about the the Kiwis attack? So you you're saying a lot of the time bowling gets there. That they seem to have a really balanced attack. They've got Santner as the uh, as the finger spinner. They've got the wrist spinner in Sodi, and then they have their their quicks to accom- uh, accompany him. Obviously led by Trent Bolt. Uh, they've also got Ferguson, Henry, and Southie in that mix as well. Despite the fact they've got one generational batsman in in Kane Williamson, and then it sort of falls away from there. They they seem to rely pretty heavily on on him and Munro. Yeah, I think the Kiwis could be there or thereabouts. Maybe put them in the smoky category. They do perform well at World Cups. They consistently punch above their weight. Um, I think they will challenge for a semi-final spot and then anything's possible. I think you're right that the strength is in their bowling. Um, you know, Ish, Ish Sodi is a, is a very good bowler, as is Mitchell Sattner in one-day cricket. I, f- I feel like they lack a little bit of batting firepower, but... Again, you can get away with with that in England, just purely because the outfields are so fast and and so small that you know sometimes you miss hits, go for six. Um, you know, if the ball swings, obviously uh, 
Bolt is is a danger man. Ferguson bowls quick. There are some ingredients there if they put it together. One thing they haven't done is played a lot of cricket of late, um, leading into the World Cup, and so you know, particularly as a team, there've been people at the at the IPL before that they hadn't had a series until their home summer. So I think they'll be there or thereabouts, but. My gut tells me that they yeah. won't win it, uh, but you could probably put them in the in the smoky category. So the big three up the top, or really uh, England, if they play their best cricket, they they should win based on what they've done in in ODI cricket over the last four years. India, they've lost one bilateral series since uh, since 2017, uh, and then Australia are, are in the mix as one of the nations that can win it. And as far as your smokies go, you said the West Indies and uh, and New Zealand uh, thereabouts as well as uh, as a possible smoky for the tournament. Can we just look a little big picture, Ed, uh, at the whole concept of the World Cup? And I know that this is something close to your heart. And when I was growing up, I remember that the 20, 2007 World Cup had 16 teams there and you had the likes of Canada and Bermuda and uh, all these developing um, cricketing nations that were able to, to make their way to, to cricket's showpiece event. Now it's down to, to 10 teams. And for those nations, it's as hard to qualify now as it as it ever has been. What's your your take on um, the way that that's unfolding? Mm. It's sad. I feel like World Cup should be inclusive, not exclusive, particularly in in a sport like cricket that is trying to expand its horizons and, and have a bit more of a, a global reach. I mean, the, unfortunately, the prime driver of this is, is TV dollars. Uh, and, and when these kind of decisions are made based on on commercial decision it's it's very sad and there are a couple of reasons why um some of the great memories from world cups are what were then at the time minnows surging uh with amazing wins look no further than uh you know the dutch um having memorable wins kenya played in the in a world cup semi final let's not forget yeah. Yeah. um and all of a sudden, you're down to 10. And if you take a step back and look at the qualifying for the World Cup that took place last year, Scotland uh, should have been the West Indies if there was a, a third umpire involved in the game, which there wasn't, because uh, they didn't have the, the technology. And they would have qualified ahead of the West Indies. And all of a sudden, the West Indies are you know, a potential Smokies to, to win the tournament. There, there now isn't the disparity between what we used to think of as minnows or associate nations and the test playing nations we've seen afghanistan you know 10 years ago come from division five to now being a test playing nation to consistently beating test playing other test playing and odi nations we've seen a resurgence in, in bangladeshi cricket they had a fine world cup um last time round in australia so the, the gap has narrowed and it's narrowed quickly and i don't think by limiting the World Cup to 10 teams were doing world cricket any favours based on the quality of the associate nations, Ireland, Scotland, uh, the Dutch, and then we've seen the emergence of, of Papua New Guinea and, and Namibia. Um, so there, there are lots of very strong cricket-playing nations, and, and what better ways of showing your wares than, than at a World Cup? Do you think there's a chance that it will ever swing back the other way? feels like it's a, a little bit of a, a lost proposition at this stage. Um, it's hard to, to unwind these kind of things. I, I think they are. They, they have, the ICC have committed to look at it. 
Um, but mm. as we know, the ICC is, is mainly dominated uh, by the power that India wields, and, and they certainly were were keen for, for the 10 teams. Um, and so let's hope that some common sense prevails and, and at least 16 teams are seen in 2023. Uh, Jim Maxwell in, in just a moment, but one of the more absurd things... Uh, Ed, that's happened this World Cup is that for the first time ever, the ICC have introduced clash strips. So as a result, when teams playing against other teams wearing similar colours, they will have to wear an alternative shirt. It's, it, it smells like we're trying to sell a few more merchandise T-shirts <laughs> at, uh, <laughs> at the retailers while the World Cup's on because that doesn't make sense for a sport that uh, for a, over 100 years both teams have, have worn white. Uh, and you can turn up at the ground and have no idea who's batting or bowling half the time to have clash strips. Um, there are only 10 teams. There aren't any away teams, so to speak. Uh, it's, it, yeah. it, it smells of a, of a, another commercial opportunity. But I think if you can draw hey, a set of stumps, it's, it's pretty clear that one team's batting and the other team's bowling. That's how you tell the two teams apart. That's true. But what I will say is I've... Not the, you know a lot of my childhood. I, I, I loved the retro look that one day cricket had, mm. and the '92 World Cup was probably maybe my my favourite strip of all time. It feels like all teams have, have kind of turned back the clock a little bit. When England unveiled uh, their sort of powder blue uniform, it had a, a eerie feel to the '92 World Cup. Australia sort of feels like they're playing a little bit in the in the 80s, so I'm quite enjoying the, the look of the strips. So, um, you know, hopefully, it can add to the, the quality of the cricket. Uh, Jim Maxwell is the voice of cricket here on the ABC. He'll be heading over to cover the tournament throughout in the UK, ahead of, obviously, the, the Northern Ashes, which then follows. I had the chance to catch up with him, and I started by asking him what he's anticipating at this year's World Cup. A lot of runs. A lot of runs. I think, uh, unless the weather turns nasty and I don't think that's forecast there's going to be some flat pitches with those typically fast English outfields across the square and short boundaries here and there and unless there's a bit of wear and tear in some of those pitches because they'll be using the ones in the middle of the square and we then get some spin I would think there'd be a fair bit of hefty scoring and the trick in this tournament is going to be able to come up with the right bowling and uh, the high quality catching and fielding uh, to try and keep a hold of a game and that's why uh, I think uh, England uh, look the most powerful batting lineup right through the lower order batting particularly after Jason Roy at the top so um, yeah I think it's going to be a high scoring tournament and uh, that's what the fans want apparently even though some old farts like me (laughs) <laughs> I'd like to see a contest between the bat and the ball. It seems as though the entertainment factor has taken over and fans want fans want fours and sixes. How do you think our team will go? I think they can win it. Yes. I don't think there's any, any doubt about that. I mean, the, the fact that we've gone back to the 1992 format where everyone plays everyone means that you're going to have to be very, very lucky uh, or extremely skillful, I suppose, to win enough games to get to the semi-finals, and that, uh, that kind of uh, scared usually means the best four teams or thereabouts will get through to the semi-finals. So we've got 
two competitions, basically. Winning enough games to get to the semis and then, you know, it can be a jackpot. Uh, a little bit of a lottery in the semis uh, on the day. The conditions might be such that um, it's better to battle bowl first rather than being even. So you just can't tell. Uh, and Australia's record is so powerful in the World Cup. And this team is getting more and more confident that I, I think they've got a, as good a chance, if not better than most. Uh, Jim, the World Cup itself, what sort of place do you think it holds in the game? We so rarely have tournament cricket on the international level. It's usually always a, a bilateral series or a tri-series or we have test series where it's nation against nation. But to, to have all the teams or all the best teams in the world, the top 10 at least, in one place at the one time every four years, what does it mean for cricket? I think it's cricket's Olympic Games because it happens every four years. But it's hard to think of any consequential 50-over cricket played in between. It's all about the yeah. T20 game and uh, the maintenance of the traditional form with the red ball test cricket. And um, the 50-over cricket could well and truly uh, be extinct were it not for the World Cup, to a lesser extent the Champions Trophy. But let's face it, it's the, it's the money bag for ICC. They make a mint out of uh, the World Cup from television rights and also from uh, the vast amounts they're charging at small English grounds for people to go and see it. So it's a huge cash cow for the game and it's a very attractive product. Uh, but what happens from here with the format of the World Cup will be very interesting because it's hard to believe uh, they can keep it to 10 teams again when there are so many fringe dwellers knocking on the door and being given the opportunity uh, to push towards this level. And uh, they need to be given a chance. And it's got to be at least 12 teams when they go around again in four years' time. And Jim, just lastly, from a personal perspective, as uh, as the voice of Australian cricket heading over to a major tournament, there are uh, guys all around the world and women that uh, hold sort of a similar place in the in the psyche in their country. What's it like for you to go to a World Cup and interact with all these other broadcasters that you've known now for 10, 15, 20 years and to have them all in one place at one time? Well, there's a lot of camaraderie, um, but you tend to be sticking to your team's game so you don't see everybody but I um, first went on an overseas tour for the ABC in 1983 that World Cup which India won extraordinarily so I got to meet and enjoy the company of a number of people and I'm looking forward to uh, that opportunity again I know a number of them uh, as it is uh, you know Fazir Mohammed from the West Indies will be visiting and Brian Waddle from New Zealand. Uh, there'll be lots of familiar faces there, but there'll be a few new ones. And uh, I'm you know, looking forward to the, the prospect of being part of uh, the show that is the World Cup and at uh, some of the, the best venues for cricket in the world, as small as they might be for a spectacular spectator accommodation. And um, you know, nothing beats seeing any cricket match at Lord's. Look forward to hearing your voice throughout the World Cup and obviously the uh, the Northern Ashes to follow, Jim. We'll, uh, we'll check in with you regularly uh, throughout on uh, on this podcast. Safe travels. Well, yes. Just, just keep your eye on, on, on one thing, which is a, a perennial in sport. That is, the greatest thief is injury. And uh, you never know when something like that's going to occur. And let's hope uh, that the better players, particularly in this tournament, are injury-free.
Jim Maxwell with his preview for the upcoming World Cup and he'll be part of the ABC's commentary team throughout. Uh, Ed, one of the other podcasts which is up and running at the moment is Ben Cameron's series Legacy, which looks back at the five winning World Cups for Australia. Uh, already out uh, where you find all your podcasts and through the ABC Listen app and probably gives a nice little pointer to our question as to your favourite World Cup memories. Whew, big question. Uh, the Huawei, the one that particularly uh, comes to mind considering this World Cup's being played in the UK is staying up as a 17-year-old uh, initially for the, the South African uh, semi-final that was played. And I, and I still remember the... And I still have a photo above my childhood bed of the moment the ball's being rolled down the pitch and everyone's sort of jumping <laughs> up and the two South African batsmen are at one end. Um, just a phenomenal game of cricket. Um, and then the memory of, of, again, staying up all night, seeing a, the, a bit of the non-event of the final at Lord's uh, I think Australia's greatest World Cup win was actually in the West Indies because they they were they really struggled um, in the lead up to that. Their team was you know full of these superstars, but that that struggled to to piece it all together. And then the unlikely heroes of that tournament, you know, Sean Tate and Nathan Bracken, and then you know the subplot of Adam Gilchrist, who literally could not buy a run all tournament, sticking a, a squash ball in his glove. Yeah. Uh, to to then peel off a a hundred and then winning it in the dark, it's it's that's a a moment that sticks out for me. How about you, Corby? Uh, probably two thousand and three. I I would have been twelve at the time, so I was probably at my peak cricket nuffy stage. Uh, and Australia were probably at their peak of, uh, peak of their powers as well, and what they were able to do uh, as a as a West Australian. Brad Hogg obviously got the the opportunity to play and play really the entire tournament after um, Shane Warne was. Sent home. It had the um, really the, the jaw-dropping moment in the semi-final when Gilchrist walked, um, having previously been been given not out against Sri Lanka. The team was up against it, and for some reason, I remember Brett Lee's hat trick vividly. And the first wicket um, of that hat trick was one of the more gruesome things I've seen in in cricket. He was bowling to um, one of the Kenyan openers, uh, Kennedy Otenyo. And hit him on the point of the elbow. I'm not sure if you remember the delivery, and the ball sort of squirted back on a 45 degrees and took out his middle stump. So not only was he out dismissed, but imagine 149 clicks, the ball coming firing through from Brett Lee um, in 2003 and, and catching him flush on the point of the elbow. Uh, and of course, there have been some, I mean, forgetting the Australian World Cup wins, we, we, we talked about the minnows before. Uh, you know, Herschel Gibbs hitting Dan Van Boogie for <laughs> six sixes in and over. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are these little snippets that stand out in my mind. Yeah, John Davison, I think, had a had an innings that tournament for Canada. Uh, so, unfortunately, we'll, we'll be missing those those little snippets of, of brilliance that we can reflect on. But uh, I'm sure, as I said, there will be some highlights, no doubt. Big Dwayne from Bermuda taking the taking Dwayne the hang. Leverock. Yes, what a moment. I don't think we'll see something like that this time uh, in in England, the 12th edition of the World Cup. Uh, so the next time we're here on, on Grandstand at Stumps will be after Australia's third game. It's the game against India, which will be fascinating. And the Aussies will be three games into the tournament by then. So we'll have a, a lot to break down and we'll get a real sense on, on where the tournament's heading. They start with games against Afghanistan. That's the Saturday night fixture. Uh, then the West Indies... Uh, on Thursday before playing uh, India and at the completion of that we'll have uh, our next pod to, uh, to break it all down. 
can't wait.